Welcome to Keep Taking Around the Saclophone Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Ryan, and we're back with season number two. It's such a pleasure bringing these conversations to you, and thank you so much for all the support. We started off season one with a bang, and we're here with 10 new conversations with award-winning and in-demand saxophonists from across the world and across contemporary and jazz styles. Today's guest is a saxophonist, singer, songwriter, prodigy, who has played over 900 stellar performances as a band leader throughout 35 countries and at venues such as the Kennedy Center, the Moscow Symphony Hall, and for Montreal, Newport, Montreal International Jazz Festival, as well as for Barack Obama's 2009 inauguration. And she's been on the late night show with Stephen Colbert as part of John Baptiste's house band. She did all of this before reaching her mid twenties. She's released 14 acclaimed albums and the latest one, All That I Need, featuring her enchanting vocals and exuberant sax, is a genre-bending electro-pop jazz record. She's been profiled by CNN, Glamour, and Vanity Fair as a millennial shaking up the jazz world. I totally agree with that. And collaborates with artists across the musical world, such as David Brubeck, the late David Brubeck, Lee Konitz, Phil Woods, Wilton Marsalis, Harry Connick Jr., David Sandboard, Questlove, Gloria Estefan, the list goes on. She's a masterful clinician specializing in jazz and improvisation and stage performance. She's taught thousands of students to become more confident performers and players both online and in person. She's a co-founder of Saxy School, an innovative online saxophone school. And she's the youngest member of the Board of Trustees at Berkeley College of Music. And she's held a teaching residency at the college. It's my pleasure to welcome the amazing Grace Kelly to the podcast. Grace, how are you doing? Jesse, good. Thanks for having me. I love what you're doing with this podcast. Thanks for bringing saxophone and these conversations to the forefront. It's my how are you? I'm, I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. <laughs> it's a bit of a gloomy day here in Toronto, but it's, um, it's good to be chatting with, with you. I want to start right at the beginning. You know, you're one of the, the people that I had on my long list of, of possible guests in season one, and it took a while for us to make it happen, but we're here, season number two. Yes. Such a pleasure to have you. So you, you know, obviously been in the, in the media for a while, and you've, you've, you know, you've released 14 albums as a leader and done amazing things thus far. When I was at Berkeley back in 2008, you were also there, and I remember passing by the the mods and listening to you practice. You know, uh, so some I have some really good memories of being in Boston, and I remember seeing you know videos of you really young, and I think they're still uh-huh. on, you know. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting saxophone lessons, and uh, even back then you were called a prodigy. So let's start at the beginning, mm. and let's. How did you get a saxophone in your hand and what were some of your formative years like? Awesome. Yeah. And just uh, so excited to have another Berkeley <laughs> alum on yeah. the call. Yeah. Um, so I started saxophone at the age of 10. And previously to that, I had been singing and my connection to music was actually in musical theater. So from the age of six, I was singing, acting, and dancing. Didn't know anything about jazz beyond listening to great recordings of like Frank Sinatra, um, June Christie, just the people my parents would play. Um, And one of the artists that my parents loved to play was Jobim. 
Mm. And the sounds of Stan Getz, specifically the song Girl from Ipanema, were on repeat in our household. Sunday mornings, like brunch, oh. my dad would make pancakes, and then you play Stan Getz and the Girl from Ipanema. And so, you know, I'm like seven, eight years old, and I would just sing along with all of his solos, and I, I knew like one day I really wanted to play saxophone to sound like that. Something I'm, <laughs> I think we're all still in pursuit of. Stan gets yeah. like the ultimate sound, right? And tone. But that's what drew me in. And so um, at the age of 10, I was able to get a Yamaha student model sax in my hand. I begged my parents to let me start um, privately because in middle school, in my school, you had to start with clarinet first and then go to saxophone yeah and i got so impatient like i tried clarinet i'm i'm very very uh beginner level with the instrument it was super frustrating to me because i wanted to play saxophone so <laughs> you know i got a sax in my hand and i started to learn like very fast and i was very blessed to have an incredible first teacher who within like a few weeks really threw me into the deep end and had me improvising. I didn't know any scales, I didn't know music theory, but he was a really consummate jazz pianist as well as a saxophonist. And he really encouraged me to use my ears. And because I'd been listening to great songs in the jazz standard, you know, songbook, we were able to actually start with songs like My Funny Valentine and um, St. Thomas. Yeah. And he would just have me improvise. So my very first memories of learning saxophone and, and getting to study with him are full of so much like fun energy because I always look forward to my lessons. I would practice for like hours after my lessons and I, I was getting good really fast. Um, and so fast forward a couple of years later, I was actually already performing professionally and made my first record at the age of 12. I never thought that I would become a professional artist. It's just. It's actually something that kind of just organically was happening yeah. um, as I was in elementary school. But uh, to this day, it's still very much the thing I love. And I'm so grateful, you know, to have a life of creating music and, and uh, being in the, the music space. What was his teacher's name? First teacher. His name is James Miranda. And he had his own private um, lesson studio outside of Boston. And um, I was studying piano with him previously to that. Good. And as the stars aligned, he's, he was ama an amazing saxophonist too. So we just started to, to add saxophone to my, to my lessons. Well, I try to make it a habit every time one of my guests mention one of their teachers from their formative years or like a high school, you know, band teachers to stick a pin here because I think educators music educators are usually some of the unsung heroes of the industry. Absolutely. You know, if you have the opportunity of studying with a great teacher, that really sets you on, a, on, a, on an amazing path for success and development. And the other thing that I'm curious about, based on what you mentioned, is as I'm reflecting on an experience that I had, I had a lesson with an amazing saxophonist here in, in, in Canada called Kirk McDonald when I was doing my undergrad, I went to his home and he was, uh, we, I, I think we played an F major scale for like two hours. 
And, wow. And he was just like helping me, you know, reshape my ambition and how I think about sound mm. and, and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And I think there was also some psychology happening at the same time. And he mentioned that for him, when he was coming up and learning the saxophone, he learned when he was younger. And so when his teacher said, do this or do that, he would just kind of do it because that's what my teacher said to do. Right. But sometimes for older beginners, you know, the older you get, the more you want things to make sense and you want to question the validity of things. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear on your experience of, you know, or you obviously had a deep interest even be- in the saxophone, even before you had the opportunity to hold a saxophone. But what was the dynamic like between, you know, the teacher assigning things for you to do? And at what point did you sort of begin to question or the validity of things? Or maybe I want to do this versus that. I think mm. this is, a, this is a, a sort of battle that lots of developing saxophonists and students kind of deal with, you know, even at the undergraduate level. Yeah, it's such a great question. And thank you for mentioning the unsung heroes of um, amazing music educators. I would not be where I am today without the incredible teachers that I've um, that I connected with and people who've mentored me. And and before I dive into that question, I want to bring up another um, very important uh, educator um, who set me on the path to actually meeting my first saxophone teacher. So at my elementary school music teacher. I went to public school in um, Brookline, Massachusetts. His name is Ken Berman, and he's an amazing educator and a great jazz pianist. And he was the one actually from early on, even before I played saxophone, he had heard me sing and he stayed with me after class to like help me learn songs, really encouraged me to perform. And when he found out that I was playing saxophone, I wanted to learn. He's the one who connected me with James Miranda And um, Ken actually recorded on on my very first album as well. So anyways, yes, just so much love for for great teachers. Um, So your question, I'm sorry, now I just, can you just tell me the (laughs) the gist of the question again? To to repeat it, I was just reflecting on how your developmental age Ah, right. Process of learning, right? So when you're very, sometimes you just kind of do what older folks say because, you know, what it is. But the older you get, you kind of question the legitimacy of things or the validity, rather. Yes. And you also begin to develop your own interests Mm -hmm. that sometimes might be in conflict with what your teacher is saying. And so how, how you, how you, did you experience those things and how did you navigate it? Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Um, You know, in the beginning when learning saxophone, I was very much taking everything um, my teacher said and it was all new information and I just focused on learning the fundamentals and really had some great instruction in learning the fundamentals. And at the same time, my teacher was headed down the path of teaching me improvisation. And this was the perfect fit for me. I didn't realize it at the time but you know, I wanted to improvise. Um, that was something innately that, you know, as soon as my teacher had said to me, okay, go ahead and play any notes you want. It was like the key to the, the 
this golden gate of something I'd always wanted to do because I've always loved to be creative and I've always loved to make things up. So that pathway that he set me on was really in alignment. Um, I'm the type of student that loves to learn and loves to learn a whole range of things. So I had some, you know, you know, fast forward many, many years to some teachers that I got to study with at, at Berklee College of Music, George Garzon, yeah. Frank Tiberi, Greg Osby, who I know is on your podcast. Mm -hmm. And I really went into those lessons with an open mind and just wanted to learn whatever they were going to teach me, right. you know, and I think some of those musical concepts um, were not things that I ended up really integrating into my language or didn't fit into like the style of music that I was writing and playing, but I would practice it for what it was. I wanted to understand that concept. And um, as I was going about my, my progress as a student, I was simultaneously getting to perform professionally. And that I think is a very unique situation. And I'm very grateful for it because I was almost getting to test out in person with live audiences you know, the music that I was working on, the music I was writing, and the things that I was learning from my teacher were simultaneously coming into my playing. Um, but I was always kind of able to keep an eye towards what I wanted to do artistically, right. you know. And that's shifted massively from my, you know, from when I was 12 years old to my early 20s it's been its own journey in pursuit of its own and it continues to change you know um in every every cycle of of my artistry but it allowed me to kind of be on my own path and trajectory and I would be able to come into some of my saxophone lessons there was a a, a great teacher of mine Jeremy Udine that I would bring my own songs I'd bring what I was working on to my lessons and then he would help me, give me feedback. We'd work on things together. Um, and I was very fortunate that when I was studying, I was studying with several different teachers at the same time. Some of them were teachers that I would only see like every two months, like yeah. the great Jerry Berganzi, who is a masterful you know, educator. He's been teaching at New England Conservatory for many, many years and a brilliant saxophonist. Well, he would give me like 40 pages of homework. So, you know, two months was already, I could barely get through everything mm -hmm. by the next time I'd see him. And then there were other teachers that I was seeing on a weekly basis. Um, and then there were mentors of mine, the heroes of mine on the alto saxophone, Lee Conins, Phil Woods, mm -hmm. Frank Morgan, that at different periods um, in my life, I was getting to hang out with them and, and learn from them. Um, I was also very fortunate that I feel like all of the teachers that I connected with, nobody ever said to me, like, don't do this, don't do that, you know? I feel like all my teachers are very open to knowing what I was doing, supporting what I was doing, giving me their own, like, curriculum. Yes. Um, but I just, I really didn't feel like there was this strict, and I've heard other some other musician stories where a teacher would be very overwhelming in in telling the student they need to do a certain thing or not play a certain way right. uh, that that wasn't my experience i had some really interesting conversations with lee Konitz about um 
commercial music and non-commercial music and he would certainly like voice his opinions yeah. and his opinions that he hoped that I would think about or you know would be um some type of compass you mm. know as, as I was going about my own artistry but never the language of you need to do this or you need to do that or don't do this don't do that and how did how did those early experiences of having you know many mentors and teachers giving their own curriculum sharing their own journeys and perspectives but sort of leaving it open for you to to choose how did those early experiences shape your artistic direction now oh it was incredibly like fundamental to who i became and am becoming as a musician and artist um i think i learned early on that everyone's got all of my teachers who i've so much so very much admired and respected they each had their own opinions and views right. you know and it was really cool actually to bring sometimes the same question to all of my teachers right. you know and hear their philosophical ideas about it hear their technical explanations and i also was studying jazz piano had a wonderful teacher doug johnson and i was studying composition um and sometimes a, a teacher would explain it to me in, in a way that made so much sense sometimes it was so cryptic i didn't even understand it until like five years later when it's like oh i remember when she said this thing to me and like oh i think it's starting to make sense now and i'm really grateful for for all of it because it allowed me grace to think about what does this mean to me and like when i'm teaching and with like the saxophone community that i'm building yeah. um it's built around having different teachers right. teach as well so that our students can can experience this variety of um of teaching um and i think as far as my you know my artistry i think that as a learner and a student i just try to be there in the present moment and take in as much as possible and just i learned so much from the osmosis process you right. know and and that very organically seeps into the way that i write the way that i perform um and so that's why i'm super super grateful for the in-person experiences that I had with my teachers of not only getting to learn with them, but with quite a few of my teachers, if not all of them, we perform together Great. as well, um, which is, you know, I, I learned so much in that, in that process. When you're in the hot seat, I'm sure, I'm sure you've had experiences like this too, Jesse, and your listeners as well. It's like, there's nothing like being in the hot seat yeah. of performing with someone that you admire you know, or performing in front of a new audience, or maybe it's your first time, you know, for someone listening, maybe it's your first time getting up to play an open mic, but mm -hmm. rising to that occasion and what comes out, yeah. especially if you've been preparing, if you've been getting, you know, honing your chops for that, for opportunities like that. Um, there's so much that, that comes into play in that moment. Yeah, I mean, so much of, of what you're seeing resonated me and it reminds me of two epi other episodes I have with, on the podcast so one of, where I was talking to Kelly Jefferson an amazing saxophonist here in, in Toronto and uh, he mentioned the phrase learning by doing mm, yeah 
and that res- what you said resonates with me and reminds me of that because is uh, as you mentioned the being in the heat of the moment and playing on on the bandstand and being with you know, one of your musical heroes so you know you have an, uh, the opportunity to almost have a two-layered conversation where you're conversing with your mentor and somebody that you can you know you see okay this is kind of a standard of what i'm reaching for but then you're also having it going out to the audience so you're getting feedback from both sides and that that idea of learning by doing it i i try to share with some of my own students as well because you know so, a lot a lot of young students their only musical experiences are making music in school mm-hmm. and i find that the best music and the one the types of music that i enjoy the most are deeply rooted in cultural heritage mm-hmm. and the culture is about people and community right mm-hmm. so so well said that that dynamic of bringing to an audience have having the performance experience getting that feedback in real time is super mm-hmm. important rather than just playing music within an academic sort of setting you know and the second thing it reminds me of is the conversation i had with sarah hanahan which I think by by this point, when this episode airs, it would have been aired. She talked about you know her experiences with you know, having learning from her mentors and how that's really the thing, you know, getting the opportunity to play and do it in real time with, mm-hmm. with mentors. You know, I remember seeing some you know early videos of yourself playing performing with Phil Woods at the Lincoln Center. And uh, can we talk about that quickly? You know, I, I remember seeing those videos and being kind of blown away that at the level you were playing at at that time and more so how the jazz community was embracing you. So mm. What did those experiences feel like for you and, and, and how did it kind of set you up to you know do what you're doing now? Um, well, in the moment, I was just incredibly nervous right. <laughs> you know um i don't even know if i was able to fully embrace and feel all of the emotions happening because mm. here i am playing with one of my biggest alto sax heroes yeah. with winton marcellus and his right. orchestra <laughs> at rose hall i mean talk about the stepping up to the hot plate and the pressure was on um and then winton counted off the song way faster (laughs) than he did at rehearsal. Like, and I remember just kind of that moment. And that's the beauty also of live performance of, wow, you never know what's going to come at you. Right. And so here we are in front of like 2000 people and I'm with my heroes and, um, it's like, we are just off and running and blazing fast tempos, which has never really like, especially learning saxophone fast tempos were just really never I, I didn't feel like it were my strong suit so I really appreciate getting that that push mm-hmm. um and it's something I've actively like I remember that period of time I was really actively practicing just tempos yeah. you know um oh, what were you then I think when I joined Winton and and Phil for that performance I think I was like 16 maybe uh either 16 or 17 or 18 um and yeah i mean it's just i remember the feeling of hearing phil's sound Mm -hmm. you know 
live, which is an incredible, incredibly powerful tone. And it's one that is just so recognizable, yeah. you know, to him. And then hearing my sound next to him. And I remember thinking um, what was happening in that moment just through osmosis is I was picking up things that he was playing and how he was playing it. And there were moments that people were saying, oh, I didn't know if it was Phil playing or you playing. Like what somebody had mentioned when they listened, we did a record together called uh, Man with a Hat. Mm -hmm. And someone had mentioned, yeah, it's just kind of your, your in and out, you know, these two voices. And, and I think I was absolutely picking up and mimicking these things, yeah. some of these things that he was playing and the way he was playing it, of course, at like a 20, 20th percent of how he does it. But that, um, that period of time, because Phil actually spent, um, time with my band doing a European tour. We did a three week European tour together and it was incredible because we were playing uh, a ton and he, he was a masterful storyteller too. Uh, and we were hanging out and eating schnitzel together in Germany. And he was telling me stories about Charlie Parker and we were all riding in the same van. Um, but that moment that you just brought us to was full of so much, um, adrenaline and um i think in those moments especially when i'm nervous i really try to ground myself by just like opening my ears and playing you mm -hmm. know in the present moment i really instead of coming with like an agenda yes of what i'm gonna play that makes me really nervous yeah um i feel and yeah and there have been some moments where i've played kind of semi-classical work. I'm not trained as a classical saxophonist, but I've done like a played a piece that was a great composer, Bill Banfield had written for me for saxophone and orchestra. And I can feel the nerves, you know, the, they, they come up. Um, but anytime there's improvisation, I really just try to hone in on, on the moment and opening up my ears and yeah. seeing that where that'll take me. So what have been some of the things that you valued in some of your heroes, their playing, their approach. I would love to just kind of talk about so what you've been in pursuit of as a saxophone mm. player, as an artist, as a creative, and also as a as a creative entrepreneur, which is sometimes mm. a phrase that some musicians kind of struggle to see themselves that way or even make that jump. And I think it's a it's a mindset that you know you mm -hmm. have to switch. I definitely see you as one of those people that have been able to own their art and, and their craft, but also make some really interesting and smart moves on the business side of things as well. So I'd like to talk about all of the above as much as we can. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, with my musical um, mentors and, and speaking of Phil Woods, and my time studying with Lee Konitz and my time studying with Frank Morgan, who is one of my favorite saxophonists on this planet. He's not as well known as, as I think he should be. He spent, um, Frank spent over 25 years in, in San Quentin prison um, during his life. And so he doesn't have maybe as many recordings as, although he still has a handful, but um, you know, something that I learned from Lee Konitz that really set me up to think about music in a different way. Um, 
was experiencing and learning the way that he thinks about improvisation, which is very much so spontaneous, really in the moment. And when I just said a moment ago of how, you know, in the case that I'm performing, I try to open up my ears and just react in the moment. I really learned that from Lee. Um, I went in and during our time together in our lessons, we would just play duets together, two saxophones. And it'd be like free form improv and sometimes it would be over tunes. And, um, you know, he stopped me sometimes and said, I don't want to hear any licks. I don't want to have hear any preconceived anything. Just let's react to each other. Hmm. And then I'd go watch him perform live. I remember there was a night where it was like he was performing with Brad Meldow and it was just an all-star rhythm section and hearing how they would all react together. And um, that was very, it, it was a little different than my experience when I'd be playing with Phil Woods you know, where Phil had some of these riffs just under his fingers, like Phil Woods-isms, you know, we've transcribed them a lot of, I'm sure a lot of people listening know what I'm talking about. And, and boy, when he would play those, it would just, yeah. just like absolutely nail them. And, um, I remember thinking at one point I was really torn thinking that it was like cheating to write out your own phrases you know, and um, because of what I was learning with Lee of like, I was just trying to come and truly improvise in the moment. And then I remember one of my teachers, Jerry Berganzi, who I very much just love his playing. And he was saying, no, we, you know, it's not, there's nothing wrong with writing out your own riffs. And he's like, I have things under my fingers, especially when it comes to like fast tempos. And so he then sent me off that after that lesson to write out some of my own riffs, you know, and do an exercise in that, especially when working with, with fast tempos. Um, when I was spending time with Frank Morgan, one of the most powerful things that I learned with him is the beauty of playing a ballad. Mm. And he would play a ballad to me like, like nobody else. I mean, when Frank Morgan plays a ballad, it just makes me want to cry or or I'm in tears and I feel like I can hear his full like life story and the full emotion everything from him like wailing on the saxophone to him playing in just a, an absolute whisper and it, te it just emotionally touches me so deeply and I, I remember I was with him um, one day and I was practicing upstairs I think we were in a, we were in a hotel and I didn't realize that he could hear me practicing mm -hmm. and he said next time when you practice in your sessions I want you to try to play as quietly as possible just play a ballad at literally a whisper mm -hmm. um, and that's what you know try practicing that and he was saying like for him and he was this incredible virtuosic saxophonist as well but he said for him if he can play a ballad and make someone in the audience cry, then he's done his job for the night. That is how he would like review his own shows. It's, and I just thought that was so powerful because here, here is this incredible saxophonist who, you know, they, he can play anything. And he was saying the most important thing to him is touching someone else's heart and playing like a beautiful ballad and that 
has always stuck with me and, and I love, absolutely love playing ballads. Same here, man. I, so much, of, so much of what you said, I resonate with. And it reminds me of another conversation I had with a Cuban Canadian saxophonist called Louis Dennis. He, he talked about humanity in mm. music and understanding the humanity of, you know, the heroes in music. Mm. And only wanting to play music that was about people and about his stories and even owning his his own humanity when he played this. And it's not about the virtuosity, mm-hmm. it's about getting to something that can touch people's heart, can move people and give people a moment or, and actually creating a moment on the bandstand as well, for people to connect to. And uh, I wonder how how much of that kind of directs your creative process now? Well, I always try to find, when I'm writing, I try to find something that speaks to my heart, you know, and I'm often searching for the inspiration. Mm. Um, Like in my last record, there's a song I wrote called We Will Rise, and it's dedicated to women all around the world. Um, It's a song about supporting and advocating for women's rights. Mm -hmm. And it was inspired by the great activist Maya Angelou and her poem, And Still I Rise. Mm -hmm. And I had her video on repeat one night on YouTube. And the way that she presents her work is like a song in itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so powerful. And so I was just listening to her voice and then ended up writing this, writing the song. Um, So songs will come to me in different ways but they definitely that underlying emotion and that heart and that message whatever it might be whether it's a message of joy or whether it's a message of you know sending the song to to women all all around the world um that will that's the the ebb and flow of of creativity um but even when i'm that's for you know writing songs but when i'm improvising i feel most connected to playing a song that has some type of story, some type of message. Do I know what I'm playing about? Something I like to talk about with my students as well that I learned from my teachers is, you know, you're playing this great jazz standard. Do you know the lyrics to the song? Phil Woods knew every lyric to every jazz standard he played. Um, And that's powerful. To, to me too, just to know if I'm going to play this beautiful ballad, like what's the story behind it and how can I relate to that song? And, and that also like gets me out of my head a bit, you know, it just gets me out of the technical part of it because emotion and I feel like, um, you know, you're mentioning with, with humanity and, and, the emotion it's like it's not always it it's never like perfect it's never technically perfect it's just a feeling you know and so whether it's like a squeak or a honk like there can be a very ugly sound that is so powerful emotionally yeah i want to shift the conversation a little bit and then bring it back earlier we were talking about your formative years and having multiple teachers and, and all of that. And I forgot to ask you, I mean, this, all of this was happening before you went to college, right? 
Correct, yes. Right. Did you ever feel as though your teachers were presenting perspectives or approaches that were in conflict with each other? Yes, I did. <laughs> yes. Right. And Absolutely. So I'm, I'm taking this moment here because I think there are many students, particularly maybe like in high school or in their undergrad programs who have maybe having similar experiences where you have multiple teachers, maybe you have a teacher taking private lesson, but you had a, a, a band teacher or mm -hmm. somebody in your church or in your family just giving you a different musical perspective. And how do you stay true to the process and growing when you have those competing perspectives? How did you do it, Grace? That's really such a fascinating question. Um, I think in the moment, I probably felt a lot of, uh, I probably felt very torn, right. like even emotionally, because I've developed such, such a strong emotional tie to my teachers too, you know, and I think there's part of this feeling, at least for me growing up with my teachers of, oh, I want to make my teachers proud. I want to do this assignment right, you know, um, and it becomes a bit, you know, it can be, it can be for some people challenging to then figure out, okay, but what's, what's best for me? I mean, I think that learning information is, is power, you know, it's so powerful and it will, the more that one can do their own research as well. Like we live in the, <laughs> the internet age and there's a lot of information on the internet. And of course it's not all, uh, in itself, it's, um, Oh, I'm having a blank on the word, but you know, <laughs> not all the information you find on the internet is good information or true information or um, going to be helpful to you. So I think that, but the more that you learn, you know, and, and I think having multiple teachers and asking them the same questions, at, sometimes I would do that. I would start to pull out, you know, if, if all my teachers said the same thing, then it was like, okay, well then if they're all saying, Grace, you got to learn your major skills. Right. <laughs> then I'm like, well, well, shoot, I think I should learn my major skills, even if I don't want to, you know, even if I think I'm such an artist, but I don't know my major skills. Like, no, all my teachers are saying that. Yeah. And then I think there becomes more artistic things that, yeah. or ways of going about improvisation. Like I was kind of mentioning, you know, this is on a much more advanced level, but when talking to Lee Conant's about you know, his idea of improvisation and how it was truly in the moment. And it was starting to make me feel like if I did something else, like I started to learn licks or licks or riffs, it would be wrong, right? right? That's the narrative that was happening in my head. And then I had another teacher who was saying, oh no, I have my whole, uh, whole files of, of riffs that I've learned. And Joe Henderson used to write out his, his own riffs as well. And, and so boom, there was a new perspective that was like, allowed me to then explore that. Um, and there were things that I discussed with Lee that were very interesting. Um, I remember having some very in-depth conversations about Ben's and he really felt that Ben's, not all of them, but the way they were played could sound schmaltzy, 
Yes, I've been there for that as well. Yeah, and and but there was it was fascinating to kind of learn from him when he thought it would sound schmaltzy, or sometimes he would stop me as I'm playing, be like, "Don't play the bend," you know, and so then. I respect him so much, so I start to think, okay, putting bends into this bucket of yes. this is what I do or don't do with them. But then, then I'd be playing a rock and roll gig, you know, and I'm playing with my blues mentor, and he's like, I need to hear longer, higher notes. Give me more, you know. He's like, don't play all those notes. Give me more pizzazz. I need you to like channel Junior Walker and like boy, do I need to add some bends in that context. So I was really learning by playing and experiencing. And I really recommend for students to, like you had mentioned, the power of, you know, actually playing in person, experiencing that. And also, I think this is where it's very powerful to um, play with other musicians who are not in your genre. You know, so if you are a jazz saxophonist and you have a friend who plays banjo, like go play some bluegrass yes. with your friend. And you may not even know how to do that. I remember at Berkeley, there were some really fantastic like bluegrass and folk musicians. And I got to sit in and play on a few jam sessions and I had no idea what to play. I don't really listen. I hadn't listened to that music, but they were so welcoming and they would teach me things, mm. you know, and that's a great opportunity for you, whoever's listening in this scenario to teach your bluegrass friend something about how you play um and because it's so different these genres are so different although you'll find similarities you'll find that you can't really use some of the things that maybe even your teacher said to use because it's just such a different scenario yeah yeah that makes sense that makes so much sense i want to shift the conversation a little bit you mentioned when you were coming up, you were singing, you took piano lessons even before you got to the saxophone. And I wonder how, and then, you know, extensive listening, you know, your parents' is, parents listening on a Sunday to Jobim, mm -hmm. that good stuff. I wonder how much of those early listening experiences, singing and playing piano sort of set you on the path for developing how you hear music and even like ear training. Mm -hmm. I think it, yeah, this is uh, something I'm very grateful to have started on, on piano and to have started singing from a young age because singing has always felt very, um, just so intuitive. Like apparently, well, my mom will say as soon as I was talking, I was singing and you know, I was hearing these songs in my head. So then, the piano allowed me to learn a little bit of a framework with harmonies, with chords, to then be able to sit down and then and sing a song. So it actually felt very, um, you know, when I started saxophone, I had this idea in my head of how it should sound. I deeply love Stan Getz, and his sound was in my ears because I actually hadn't listened to any other saxophonist previously um, in my youth before I you know, was checking out people that my, my teacher was yeah. telling me about. I'd only listened to Stan Getz. So he was very much in my ear. And what I innately wanted to do with the saxophone is to be able to sing with the instrument in the way that when I sit down at the piano and sing, it feels that free. 
what I found very challenging is, you know, because I did not yet have the technique, the fundamental technique built up, I couldn't connect what I was thinking musically and what I was singing in my head to the instrument. And so that was really frustrating because I had so much music in my head. And my advice for anyone who's in that situation is like, you really just need to spend the time to learn the fundamentals of the instrument. Like learn your chromatic scales, learn, learn your major scales, learn all these, your, your arpeggios, like chord tones. You need to have that under your fingers. And then um, the process of then like matching up what was in my head and with my saxophone is a very slow process, but something really as simple as singing a phrase and then starting to match those notes with the saxophone. I call it like a air playing technique. Yeah. So I can lead, I can lead folks through I'll the be- concept of that. Yeah. So the idea is you take a note that's easy to sing, you know, it could be a different starting note for you depending on your vocal range, but something that's just in the middle of your range. La. That's my bass note. And I'm going to start by creating a really simple three note phrase. I'm not going to have crazy intervallic jumps. I'm not going to think about the rhythm. I'm just going to focus in the phrase. Um, off the top of my head. La, la, la. La, la, la. And what I would do is I would record singing that phrase. I'd sing it a couple times to make sure it's here. And then like the third or fourth time as I'm singing it, I'm beginning to airplay those notes. And to guess, where where are they? La, la, la. And then check myself. Now for some people listening, this is like, they'll be like, that's incredibly easy. But, But that's where you start, right? And then at this point, you know, what I'm thinking about much bigger intervals or I'm adding chromaticism to it, I'm able to sing and play what's in my ears um, on the sax. And I'll give a little demonstration. Top of my head, I'm gonna just try to use bigger intervals and some chromaticism and just um, sing a line and play that line. La, 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 la. You'll notice I'm also pressing down the notes as I sing. this exercise is you can always make it more challenging right you know you can always add bigger intervals or um a longer phrase which will also then test your memorization skills so i'm at the point now where if i'm on a train or a plane and i have to learn music and i can't have my saxophone in hand i can be airplaying those notes and i can hear it and sometimes i actually test myself 
if I'm like listening to a recording and trying to figure out, say, the bass line, mm -hmm. you know, I'll try to sing it and then imagine where are those notes. But that's the, that was a very slow process for me um, when learning the saxophone and then figuring out how do I connect what I'm hearing with what I, with what I want to play. And of course, the more that one transcribes, you know, that really helps this process as well. If you're transcribing where, you know, you're, you're listening a ton, you're singing along yeah. and then you're playing, um, and so I think that's a, a very powerful thing that I recommend that all my students work on because, you know, the saxophone has a lot of buttons. Yes. So, and they're fun to press, and they're fun to play. And you could be a fantastic technical player without having any connection to what you're actually hearing. Right. Right. So, but I think it is, if you want to write your own music, if you want to feel more connected to your improvisation, if you want to also you know, build a, a lyrical nature to how you play, which I know, Jesse, like you have such a beautiful lyrical way of, of, of playing the saxophone, then I think that working on the ear training part of it is worth your time. You know, sometimes people think, I just got to work on a technique. I just got to work on technical stuff. But developing your musicality and, and developing your ears mm -hmm. uh, will help you become also a, overall as a musician will strengthen your your skill set as a as a musician right i i want to make a connection to phil woods and come back to this topic so i took some lessons with the amazing john gordon a couple years cool. ago and he shared some things that he learned from phil woods with me and it's an exercise that phil called the four sounds talking about the four main sort of like harmonic sounds that you get in your ear and split under your fingers and i'm wondering what sort of ear training and language building sort of things did you work on either with phil or anybody else really to develop your approach as an improviser yeah it's a great um great question and lead way from from kind of the basic beginnings of how you create um, recognition among intervals to then segueing into how do you get it into your lines and improvisation um, a teacher of mine wonderful saxophonist and um, brilliant at ear training and teaching ear training Alan Chase he has this voice leading exercise where at the heart of it um, you're trying to find common tones between yeah. the shifting chord changes, you know, because I was at that point in my playing where it's like everything felt very up and down, just like arpeggios. You know, you see one chord, you see the next chord, but it's like, how does this all connect? And and when you move into much more advanced type of songs, like a say a giant steps, you know, how can that feel more approachable on a lyrical, on the lyrical side of things? And so with him, it was wonderful to learn this more um, linear way of looking at chords, which is finding the common tones between each of the chords and writing out that smooth voice leading line, which on some songs would actually just be like hanging on one note, you know, um, say like autumn leaves. You don't have to do a lot of movements if you're just trying to find the common tone yeah. um, starting on a chord tone. 
And so we would do these exercises where we would write that out. Um, and then he would have me do that exercises using not only chord tones, but um, tensions as well, using that in, in the voice leading line. And then I would sit down at the piano and I would sing those phrases and I would play them. And that was very helpful because even just on a very basic piano, um, knowing just very minimal technique, if I can play the left hand, the root on the left hand, and play the guide tones on the right hands, which is the third scale degree and the seventh scale degree, and learn how to smoothly create those inversions, you know, and I would use that and then I would sing that, that voice leading line that I had written. And that really helped my ear decipher, okay, this is the third scale degree here. This is the, the fifth, you know, the seventh. Um, and just doing that on tunes. Yeah. That's very helpful in the chord changes and connecting the dots there. I think this is super important. I remember John had me working on, on similar things and it really transformed my approach mm. to developing as an improviser and really opened up my ears. Mm. Before that, I think I was trying to plug in melodies, licks that I had, I had transcribed before. Mm-hmm. But now I was able to be more in the moment and hear my way through the changes having those guy tones as like the the foundation for everything mm. that I try to teach my, my students this as well I, I think some early beginners or even students at, at in their undergrad they think that they have this concept that because they're moving towards virtu- virtuosity that they have to begin with virtuosity mm-hmm. and any notes and play all the hip things right so i i sort of see this guy tone exercise as a as a means to an end and like laying good foundations you know towards moving toward uh other things whatever that may be would you agree with that absolutely yeah i i think that um <laughs> the person who really draws my attention, say we're at a jam session, right? And say there's like a lot of saxophonists playing. And like you said, there's this feeling of wanting to play all the hip stuff. Yes. But the person who's gonna get my attention is the one who plays the most musical, you mm-hmm. know? And the person, maybe they're playing the most simply, but it's just um, the harmonic simplicity or, or how they connect with the other musicians. That outweighs any type of virtuosity in my book you know that is music and um when you kind of just string together a bunch of virtuosic things but they don't really have meaning or they don't have a connection it just really feels like a bit random and like someone's just flexing in front of you you know versus playing music with the people around you right yeah, I mean, that sentiment has been around for a long time and it's something I've been reflecting on recently. I I do think that there's there are a lot of examples online of people flexing and I think you know the the online space 
and access to information definitely contributes to that. And, and I think the thing that a lot of people are missing again is the, the, the humanity going out to gigs, seeing how audiences respond to things and doing that within a, a community context. So that's not just about the showing up. I think the academic sort of context, and I'm saying that in the broadest way, whether it's an actual, you know, school mm. or, 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 or community that's connected in an offshoot of a, of a school, you know, a sub-community of an academic setting, kind of those kind of things thrive in those settings, but in a, in a setting where you have people who are, uh, are not there for those reasons, you really have a, a, a true opportunity to get a sense of, how do we actually cre create music and how do we touch people? And oh, I think yeah. what I was going to say, say earlier on, it was about this, this same point again about connecting with people. And, and I wonder how much of your approach, you know, you made big shifts in your artistic approach, I would say, on, on the saxophone from when you were 12 years old, even 15 years old. Mm -hmm. what you do now we can definitely hear a thread in in what you do as your foundation as a, as a jazz musician and as a contemporary musician and I, I wonder how all of your musical experiences and coming coming up early and having some really amazing opportunities to be on big stages how that formed your concept of being an, an, an entrepreneur and like the business side of things and how using business models and business tools allows you to connect with new audiences. Yeah, I mean, I'm very passionate about the subject. You know, I think that um, in today's world, being um, artist in 2023, and the skills that you need to learn, um, and continue to be learning and, and for the students who are in school now, the skills that they need to to learn to be in the music industry five years from now are shifting so rapidly you know and when we look at technology and we look at ai like i'm not even quite sure what some of those skills are going to be in the music industry when with how we see technology shifting um but i i've you know early on was really captivated by the idea of how you can record a video and then, you know, put it out online on social media and, and reach a lot of, a lot of people. And to this day, I have like lots of fans, you know, all around the world who have discovered me through like a YouTube video or through my social media. And, um, it's a great opportunity to be able to showcase your, you know, your artistry. And there's a lot of aspects within the music industry. Like I would say the primary, if we're talking in a business sense, yes. primary, primary revenue driver is touring and live shows. But um, I've been over the years and, and really stepping into this now of also building online businesses um, because there's a great opportunity there as well to scale one's mm -hmm. business. Um, and the thing about performing is you are, are one person in one place, you know, for that one audience, which is a fantastic thing to get to perform live. But if you want to be able to scale your business and, and reach even more people, we have ways of doing that online. Um, it's just, a, it's just figuring out what are you, what value are you presenting your audience with? 
and you know what's the market size and what are you what are you offering um so you know with my work in the online educational space been trying to figure out how can i teach students all around the globe you know and bring together teachers that are also teaching people all around um and make that accessible for for people internationally and um the thing that I think is pretty cool about social media that, um, you know, I, I encourage people who are listening who, you know, s perhaps don't have a very positive view of social media is, is to think of it as a tool. It's a tool for getting word out about your latest artistic endeavor or your tour. It's a way of connecting with other people. I have connected with so many collaborators, just like through direct messages on Instagram. That's how I met uh, Leo P. That's how I connected with Corey Wong from Wolfpack and then later led to having me join the Fearless Flyers record. Um, there's countless others, you know, that I've literally connected with online and you can really use it as a tool when it comes to um, experimenting with getting your your videos and your content out and it's like goes out to a test audience you know say you're trying to get your music out to a new type of audience you're trying to grow your um, your fan base well in a matter of seconds you know you can upload that video and press publish and you can get people's reactions and fans and people online are very smart. I mean, some of them. <laughs> and I've had some fans write to me and say, like, I thought it was spot on how you did this. This felt very you. You know, this other video, like, I, I could see you're searching. It doesn't really, like, resonate as much with me. And it's not to say that I'm, I'm not trying to, to create my art in all capacity to say, to, to feed that one person. Yes, who's writing a comment, but I'm, I'm of course thinking about that, thinking about my audience and wanting to connect with them as I create my own artistic um, vision. And it's really helpful. It can be really helpful to um, get that feedback. Of course, there's some really terrible comments too. It comes with the territory and there's trolls and that's its own conversation. But if you think about the amount of time that would it would actually take to do that physically, like in person, to like make your music and to survey hundreds of thousands of people, you know, that would take a very long time or you need the right opportunity for it. But with the opportunities online, you can get that reaction so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Grace, there's so many things I would love to chat with you about, but you've been so gracious with your, with your time. I know that you're busy. And so I want to wrap up this conversation. I like to do that with a, a bit of a, a, a game that we call three, two, one. I would love you to quickly share three albums that have been instrumental for you, two artists that have been uh, saxophone players specifically that have been influential for your development and leave our audience with one piece of advice. Mm, that's so great. That is so great. Okay, so I'm just gonna give a disclaimer that these are the the records that are 
really coming forth to me in this moment? Because this is such a good question. It's so <laughs> tough. I feel like I change my, my mind every every day. So three yeah. albums. Yeah, three albums. Go for it. <laughs> Gets Gilberto yeah. um, with the orange yes. cover. Paul Desmond and Jerry Mulligan yeah, are coming yeah. to mind. I just love that record so much. Mm -hmm. um, Frank Sinatra, like live at the sands, coming yeah. to mind right now. Um, I learned so many original jazz standards, like listening to Frank singing. Yeah. Sax players, Stan Getz, okay, yeah. definitely one of those players. The other person who's coming to mind in this moment is the great Johnny Hodges. Some of my earliest transcriptions were of Johnny Hodges. And so I think I'm just thinking about my initial saxophone, you know, those first years learning saxophone, that's very much come into the forefront. Um, my piece of advice, um, I think this goes back to our conversation a little, little while ago. Really, I encourage everyone listening to get outside of your comfort zone and to try something very new musically and that could be collaborating with somebody outside of your musical genre um that could be taking that leap to perform for the first time maybe going to an open mic um you're gonna discover so much in the act of uh trying something new and that's outside of your your comfort zone and um i'm just i really would be curious to leave that with your listeners i think something will come to mind for them that's something they've been wanting to lean into or maybe it's that thing that you're a little afraid of right. too but that's great you should lean into that and um see where it takes you that's amazing you made the jump recently not too recently from new york to la you know you're you know based in la correct yes what do you have coming up that we can share with the audience so I have a new album coming out in uh, March of 2024, although we've already started to drop singles for it. And um, it's a really fun project. We're covering some of my favorite movie music. So like John Williams, Quincy Jones, and it is in an orchestral setting. So it's uh, with strings and a fantastic rhythm section and just some brilliant arrangements by uh, and a wonderful cast of folks. So that'll be in the very near horizon and we've started to tour the project as well which has really been very exciting that's incredible i am definitely going to look out for that and so we can share with the audience thanks jesse absolutely now how can people connect with you so people can find me online my website's gracekellymusic.com my instagram is at g kelly music my uh, facebook grace kelly music um and youtube is under youtube.com grace kelly music there's so many gems that you dropped in this episode and so many uh, offshoots that we could, you know, we could have explored. And I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, we could probably do a part two, you know, maybe in season three, if time permits and if you're touring schedule. Yeah, yeah. And I very much enjoyed this conversation again to, to chat with you, Jesse. Let's, let's definitely, let's do it. That would be a blast. Amazing. Thanks so much again. And I hope that if you're listening this conversation, was helpful for you to keep taking ground in your personal, creative, professional journeys. Until the next time, keep good. Thanks so much. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Jesse.